Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and get started. We have a busy schedule with this conference. We want to try to uh, make sure we get everybody in with ample time. My name is Dan Mitchell. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome all of you to this conference. We're going to be talking about the economic impact of government spending and, of course, also talking about some potential solutions uh, to our budget problems. And when we talk about the issue, the economic impact of government spending, we're not really talking about sort of the argument about Keynesian economics, should there be government spending during a downturn. We're talking about the long-run issue about what are the implications of a government that consumes, say, 20 percent of GDP versus one that consumes 40 percent of GDP. What is better for economic growth? And, of course, that's very much an issue that is uh, dominating Washington right now, because in the last 10 years, government spending on the federal level has jumped from 18% of GDP to 25% of GDP. And if you look at their long-run forecasts, because of things like entitlement programs, uh, we're heading into Greek-style territory with a federal government alone approaching 45% uh, of GDP. And then, of course, you add in 15% for state and local government. Uh, you can sort of get an idea of the problems we're uh, facing. Uh, but I want to jump right into our program. Uh, we're very happy to start off with Senator Corker of Tennessee. Uh, just real briefly from his bio, uh, he started a construction company with $8,000 and a pickup truck. I guess you, you sort of have to have a pickup truck in Tennessee. I'm going to tease him a little bit. He's a Tennessee vol. I'm a Georgia bulldog. His daughter went to Georgia, though, so that's a sign of evolution. Uh, but anyhow, he got involved in uh, politics in uh, 2001 as the mayor of uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2008. He was the president of the, his uh, Republican class. He was the only member of his Republican class, uh, but uh, nonetheless, I'm sure he would have been the president anyhow. He's going to talk about his legislation, the CAP Act, uh, and uh, I won't say anything about it. I'll just turn it over to you, Senator, to uh, discuss it. Thank you. So I'm, uh, I'm really glad to be here. I appreciate the work the Cato Institute does, and we certainly read numbers of papers that come from here. And, and uh, I think uh, all of us are benefited from uh, think tanks that do what you do, and we greatly appreciate that. And I thank you all for taking the time to come and listen. I try to make this presentation in every place that I can. I've done this 43 times across the state of Tennessee in almost every setting you can uh, create. It's a little bit longer when I do it there, and it's one of those kind of situations where I walk into a standing ovation, and I leave, you can hear a pin drop, okay, because people uh, sober up to where our country is. Now, I'm not going to walk through multiple slides. I know this audience is very aware of where our country is as it relates to our indebtedness, but I look at this at a time when we're trying to figure out how to keep our citizens safe on one hand. We're trying to figure out, on the other hand, how we remain internationally competitive and have people having increasing standards of living in this country. And then we have this issue of debt, which is underneath all of this. I think this is the number one issue uh, for our country to deal with. I don't think there's anything more important. And I believe that over the next 90 to 120 days, we have a tremendous opportunity to do something that is great for our country. I really believe that. I wake up every single day meeting with senators on both sides of the aisle, individually, in their offices, selling the fact that we have that opportunity and need to take advantage of it. I think there are three steps to what we ought to do right now. The first step, certainly, is to get as much as we can done with the continuing resolution that takes us through this year. 
The second step, I believe, is the CAP Act, which I'm getting ready to outline in just one second. And we need to do something statutorily now so we begin. And then the third step would be a constitutional amendment of some sort to cap spending so that when we fall off the wagon and you quit paying attention to us the way you are right now, we don't go back to our old habits. So to me, I know you have Mike Lee coming in right after me to talk about a constitutional amendment. I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about the CAP Act. And uh, I'm just going to walk through, again, five very, very uh, quick slides. First of all, uh, today, this slide denotes, by the way, only our public debt. I think all of you know we have about $4.5 trillion of debt that is on our books that we've taken out of trust funds and those types of things that are IOUs. This is only our public indebtedness. And today we sit at 63% debt to our country's economic output. I know with the kind of audience that we have here today, I know that you know the IMF and other institutions look at the health of countries based on the amount of debt that they have relative to their economic output or GDP. It's not unlike what uh, some of your companies do. When you look at the amount of debt or spending, you look at the amount of income that the company has, and you see how much debt, if you will, the company can service based on the amount of income that it has. So today, we're sitting at 63% debt to GDP. And in 20 years, I know all of you know this, we're going to be at 146% debt to GDP based on the policies that we have in place today. And I know that all of you know that at this mark, 120%, that's where Greece had the issues that it had. I know our country is different from Greece. I'm not trying to compare us to Greece. Is that, uh, we have a Japanese. Oh, that's the air conditioning. I think so. Okay, so um, it's, it's much louder up here. Um, so... Anyway, I think all of you know that uh, this was the level where Greece uh, had the issues that it had to deal with. I will say that I, I have sat down with their prime minister, their finance minister, their central bankers, and I assure you they were not making the, the decisions about what they as a country uh, had to do at that time to get lenders to continue to loan them money. Let's go to the next slide. So... Um, I've been here four years. Dan mentioned I was president of my class in 2006. Um, I've been a businessman. I've operated all around the country, building shopping centers, owning and developing real estate. I was a mayor. I was a commissioner of finance for our state. I have never been any place like Washington, D.C., okay? There, there's nothing I've ever been near that is as dysfunctional as Washington, D.C., the very fact that we today are dealing with last year's business, 30 hours from a government shutdown, just speaks to the inertia, the lack of us, the lack of courage, the lack of wanting to make tough decisions, right? I mean, it's just an incredible place. We never know where we're going. I mean, here we are again. We're fighting right now over billions when we've got trillions that we need to be dealing with, but we don't have a plan as to where we're going. It's something that's so evident when you've just been here a brief amount of time. I tell folks back home that no matter how irresponsible they believe we are with their money, it's even worse. They ought to see it up close. They ought to see the way we do what we do. So, 
you know, I'm one of those folks who, who likes to know where I'm going. My company, we had projections. We knew what we were going to spend on capital. We did the same thing with our city. We did the same thing with our state. So we developed the CAP Act. It's a 10-page bill. It's simple. It doesn't have a lot of whereases in it. It just is like a business plan for the United States. It is in legislative language, so it's something that is ready to be passed. But it does, it does four things. Number one, it puts a cap on spending. Dan mentioned that we were at 25% of GDP. Maybe we're at 24.5% today. This is the highest level spending relative to our economy that we have been since 1945 in this country, the highest level since 1945. So uh, what is it we need to do? To me, what we need to do is cap spending and then drive it down to what I would call the 40-year historical average. And you might say, well, why did you pick the 40-year historical average? I want to pass a bill, okay? I don't want to message. I believe that this crisis and spending is real. I'm concerned about our country. I don't think we have many years to do what needs to be done. And so what is unreasonable with driving spending levels down to the post-entitlement 40-year average? It seems to me that people on both sides of the aisle ought to be able to support that type of glide path. So this bill puts us on that glide path it has benchmarks that are laid out. It has a formula that drives you to that every year prior to budget negotiations needing to take place. In other words, that target is projected out in advance so that the appropriations committees and others involved have the ability to drive towards that number. We, we look at the, average, the GDP on a multi-year averaging basis. We take three years into account. So if you have one year that's odd, you don't have volatility in your targeting. That's something that the federal government is not able to cope with. It's very difficult to even do that on a state basis, but certainly not at the federal level. And then here is the piece that is maybe the most important. It puts in place something called sequestration. If we do not meet the benchmarks that are laid out, OMB, and this is constitutionally an okay thing to do. We've met with constitutional scholars. OMB comes out based on a formula not based on their judgment, based on a formula, and begins extracting money out of every area of government, okay? This will be the first time that I know of that we will look at every piece of government spending, including entitlements. In other words, right now you see us fighting. You know that we are taking in $2.2 trillion this year, and you know that we are spending $3.7 trillion this year, and you know that if we did away with all defense spending and all non-defense discretionary spending, we still would not balance the budget. Still wouldn't balance it. You could do away with all of that, and we wouldn't balance the budget. So the fact is that the only way we're going to deal with the issues that are in front of us is for everything to be on budget. All the entitlement programs, everything would be on budget. And if we did not redesign those programs and do the other things that were necessary to meet these caps, money would be sequestered out of accounts. That is something no senator, no congressman wants to do. But without teeth like that, there's almost no way that Congress is going to have the courage to do the things that it needs to do. And then you have the ability to override that with a two-thirds waiver. Uh, again, something that you can legislate. Uh, obviously, there are ways, there are some ways of getting around that, but this is the strongest 
piece of legislation that we feel we can put in place. Let's go to the next slide. So what does it do? It caps spending relative to our economy. It takes us to a place that has been our 40-year average. This, if you look at most, uh, most people on the Hill, look at what's called the CBO Alternative Fiscal Scenario. That's a CBO baseline, but also assumptions that are what people think is really going to happen, okay? For instance, for years we've talked about the AMT tax kicking in at certain levels, but we always kick it down the road. We look at SGR on Medicare. Uh, we never actually incorporate it. So the alternative fiscal scenario is what most people focus on to look at where spending is really going to be. The CAP Act, if it's put in place, will cause us to spend $7.6 trillion less over a 10-year period than current policy. That is a lot of spending. And the way you have to do that, as you know, you all know the difference between one-time spending and one-time cuts and recurring cuts. Recurring cuts are those kind that go all the way through the budget, okay? They just keep on going. What this would force us to do is redesign almost every area of government, and we'd have to begin doing that next year because this would kick in in the fiscal year 2013. The interesting thing is you saw the chart a minute ago that takes us from 63 percent to the number that was stratospheric over a 20-year period. At the end of 10 years, instead of seeing that happen, where we would be is at 64% debt to GDP, and each, there, each year thereafter, we'd be driving that number down. So to me, this is something that is statutorily able to be done. Mike Lee, which will come in in a minute, talking about the constitutional amendment, typically it takes two years to get a constitutional amendment passed throughout the country, that's been the average, if you can get it to pass Congress. The particular one that I think he is going to be talking about then has a five-year kick-in after that. That's seven years. You have to do something in the interim statutorily to begin driving down costs. Otherwise, you have a seven-year period of time where you really haven't taken the action that needs to be taken. Let's go to the next slide. A lot of people have asked, well, you know, how does this compare to other plans? Uh, this is the Obama plan, okay? And that is that in 10 years, we're going to be at 26.8% spending relative to GDP, which is just absolutely stratospheric. You're talking trillions of dollars. The blue line, uh, you remember the Ryan roadmap where Paul Ryan has caught unbelievable grief about laying something out through the year 2055 that was absolutely, you know, that was at least thoughtful and laid out ways of how to deal with, uh, with excessive spending. At the end of 10 years, Paul Ryan, under the roadmap that he developed about a year and a half ago, got down to 22.6%, okay? The President's Deficit Commission, which is still meeting, I think you know there's a gang of six, three on each side, that is looking at trying to to agree on that and then create some legislative language around it. At the end of 10 years, they get down to 21.8%, and obviously the CAP Act, which I'm outlining right now, takes us down to 20.6%. i have had numbers of conversations with Paul Ryan. I think all of you know he's put forth a what I would consider an, just an outstanding service to our country to lay out um, what can be done. It's interesting to note that in 2022, under this newest plan that he's just laid out, he gets down to 
0.25% spending relative to GDP. So the point is that if you put in place the CAP Act to force us to take those kinds of actions, there's at least one plan that's been laid out already that shows a pathway to do that. But this to me, uh, let me go back to 20.6%. I want to pass a bill. I don't want to pass a bill for the sake of passing a bill. I want to pass a bill because I'm, I'm really concerned. I watch what we do on the Hill. I see incredible lack of discipline. I see, instead of places that I've been used to where, let's say, as a mayor, what do you want to do the first year you get there? You want to make all the tough choices you can make, right, and just go ahead and write the ship immediately. As commissioner of finance for our state, what do you want to do? You want to write the ship immediately. As a business person, you come into a tr troubled company, what do you want to do? You immediately make those changes that are necessary to make sure the company is on the right path. Around here, what do we do? We wait and wait and wait, hoping, hoping somehow that the real issue will be dealt with after we're gone or after our election cycle is over. So the only way to create the kind of urgency that we need in Congress to be responsible to be courageous, to deal with everything in the budget so we can actually close that gap I was talking about, to me, is to have something in place like the CAP Act. I need 13 Democrats if every Republican voted for it, right? In the, in the Senate, you need 60 votes. I think our opportunity to change the direction of spending in our country is on the debt limit vote. I really believe it. I know that people have said that it's irresponsible to not vote for a debt ceiling increase because it's, it's like running up a credit card tab and then not paying the bill. And the fact is, Congress is spending the money, and the analogy is semi-correct. I have come to the conclusion after being here four years that it's irresponsible not to be responsible prior to a debt ceiling vote, okay? And to me, we've got to have some kind of fiscal straitjacket put on Washington or this will never end. So I'm hoping that sometime prior to the debt ceiling vote or maybe simultaneously, the CAP Act becomes law. I have two Democrats as co-sponsors. One's announced, one's unannounced. It has tremendous momentum on the Republican side. We've obviously spent a lot of time talking to Ryan and others. We're working daily to educate people about the need for this. And again, wouldn't it make sense for a body that has 100 senators and 435 congressmen that tend to bicker, 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 wouldn't it be interesting to first, to first agree where we're going, first agree what the game plan is, and then let the debate begin. So with that, Dan, I thank you for the time. This is a great group of people to be talking about. And of course, we will go anywhere at any time to talk about the CAP Act. But with that, I'd like to take any questions or comments that the group may have. Let, let me say one uh, before the clap. Thank you for the clap. That was, a, that, that was a robust applause. Thank you so much. The one thing about looking at spending relative to our country's output is what does it do to the two parties? It causes them to be joined at the hip wanting economic growth to take place, right? Because the easiest way to get down to a number that's healthy spending relative to GDP is for the economy to grow. So at least the two sides would be joined at the hip on economic policy, or at least 
what they would perceive to be something that promotes economic growth. So with that, I'll stop. All right, now we can clap. We do have time for a couple of questions. We'll start right there. And I guess uh, we do have a microphone, so wait for the microphone to come around and just say quickly who you are. Uh, Roman Bueller with the Madison Amendment Coalition. Uh, we've been down this road before with Graham Rudman, and as you correctly point out, Congress in tough times, maybe with a little bit more conservative Congress than we, I'm a liberal Congress than we have now, tends to... Uh, Fall off the wagon. Fall off the wagon. So yeah. you talked about a constitutional amendment. Right. There's a debate going on right now about whether states should be empowered to propose constitutional uh, reform because it's very unlikely we're going to get two-thirds of both houses to go that far. What's your thought on state-initiated reform? Uh, look, I, I, you know, I, you know, just as a, an observation, you never know what's going to happen when that occurs, right? But, uh, but uh, look, I, I think that we need some anchor, some anchor to keep us on the wagon. I agree with you. The problem with Graham, Graham Rudman did some great things. Let's not forget that. I mean, it did change the direction. At some point, uh, obviously, it was dissipated, and, and, and there were deals that were made, by the way, to, to, to try to balance the budget and all of that along the way. But, but we in Congress have shown, let's face it, I mean, what, ha what, what, what has happened in Western democracies in general, politicians like to give citizens what they want and don't ask them to pay for it so they can be reelected, right? So I would love to see a constitutional amendment. Uh, I'd prefer to see us have the courage to enact it from here, but if not, uh, state done, fine with me. Let's, but, but I do think we're going to need an anchor. I think something like this can stay in place for five to seven years. Our tendency, though, is to fall off the wagon. By the way, I'll take five years, okay, because trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars will be saved in the process. And I think, I think one thing that will happen is we'll be sending a signal to the rest of the world that we're taking on this problem. And let me say this, the tough decisions would begin this very next year because, again, you cannot do this without looking at everything we do in government and redesigning it. You cannot do it. Those are tough decisions. Yes, yes, sir. Right up front there. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, now, uh, we also have a deficit issue here in the district, uh, ironically, and, we're and our mayor is making big decisions about what to cut here, and, and obviously it sort of seems coincidental or analogous. What areas do you feel we need to focus on that would be the, the biggest concern that, that we may be wasting? Uh, in, in Washington? In D.C.? Well, no, I mean as far as the federal... Uh, Look, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any question, but that everything needs to be on the table. I mean, I, I don't think that you can say, as a Republican, for instance, that you think defense ought to be off. I, I disagree with that. I think you have to look at every single area of government. One of the big areas that, I mean, let's face it, Medicare cannot continue on the path that it's on. It cannot. It cannot continue. We've got to look at it in a different light than we do today. Otherwise, it's not going to be there for people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So um, I don't know of anything that doesn't need to be looked at. I was just talking with Tom Coburn, and uh, he was talking about this Lean Six Sigma program that only a portion of our government actually incorporates, but those areas where it is, huge reductions have been made. I don't know of anything that we do at the federal government that shouldn't be looked at, but let's face it, where's all the money? All the money's in mandatory spending, the mandatory spending programs, and unfortunately... 
uh, or fortunately, whatever you want to look at, it, those are the areas that we're going to have to look. Paul Ryan has laid out a way of doing it. My guess is the gang of six may lay out a different way of doing it. But it's those automatic expenditures, again, as I mentioned before, uh, you can do away with 100% of discretionary spending, including defense, and not close the gap based on the way things are going today. So you have to look. You have to look at the entitlement programs. And I think the way you communicate that, because it's just true, you're doing that to make them sustainable. You're doing that so that people who are to-be seniors down the road actually have them to rely upon. Other questions up there? Uh, I guess a yellow sweater. Is there also a microphone up there? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'd like to wish you uh, best of luck on your uh, uh, proposal. I would compare it to two things. First of all, the 19th Amendment, which I don't think was very successful. And the second thing I would compare it to is a, a father of a teenager advising them not to drink, smoke, have sex, or drive in a car with somebody that's irresponsible. And I can imagine how effective that would be. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, assume three things and then get your specific response to five. Uh, let's assume your proposal is passed. Let's assume those expensive things called Planned Parenthood and NPR are, in fact, defunded. So let's get that behind us. Could you give us – you've been in Washington for four years now. Can you give me five highly specific changes that would each reduce the deficit by $10 billion? I want specific feedback. Thank you. Five changes that would reduce by $10 million? $10 billion? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I, I mean, I could list ethanol subsidies, which are tax expenditures. Uh, there's an easy $10 billion at the Pentagon. Anytime you've had a Defense Department that's been growing rapidly since 2001, where basically we've said, look, do whatever you need to do because we have these wars we have to fight, and I agree with that. But you look at a department like that with that size budget, I could get 50 out of there over time, okay, all 10 of the, all five of the $10 billion requests. Uh, okay, that's two. Um, gosh, uh, we could change, uh, we could make very minor, very, 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 minor tweaks, very minor tweaks to Medicare and easily, easily uh, uh, get that, uh, get tweaks just based on how we make payments uh, as individuals. Uh, Social Security, um, you know, during the first 10-year window, there's probably not much in the way of savings, but just by changing the COLA to a standard COLA uh, on Social Security, there's tremendous amounts of money. And, and by the way, these programs, each year that goes by over the last two years, do you know that we've been adding about $10 trillion, $10 trillion in unfunded liabilities down the road each year that's gone by that we haven't dealt with those? So I, I actually, I don't think there are many, some of the smaller departments of government would be very difficult to, to maybe to find 10 in that one department, but there are very few of those. There's all, all kinds of places where $10 billion uh, would be easily done. That's why if you look at this CR that we're dealing with today, it's like it's like two drops in a bucket. I mean, we're dealing we're dealing with two drops in a bucket. We're dealing with a lot of nothing right now. And we need to 
We need to get this done and move beyond it so we can deal with $7.6 trillion, which is real money, okay? So, so um, the, 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 I mean, it, it, it's a paradise. The government, federal government's a paradise to find $10 billion in savings throughout it. I mean, but especially where you would find it. Look, uh, giving the states more flexibility on Medicaid, you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, okay? Just by us not telling governors of states exactly what they have to do with Medicaid dollars, but giving them the flexibility to make those decisions themselves, you're talking huge amounts of money. It would make $10 billion look like chump change. So there's lots of areas for us to look at. Okay, let's get uh, one Did that pass your test? Okay, thank you. Let's get one more question, and then we have to let the senator go. Mr. Yellow Sweater, I might add, yes. Yeah. Hi, uh, Mike Willey, Georgetown University. Uh, Thank you for the talk. Um, Ronald Reagan ran on a platform of ending the Department of Education, and the Republicans have fallen off the wagon with that over the last 30 years. With the stimulus package, it doubled the size of the Department of of Education, where you could now, according to what he requested, save $100 billion, which would double what the guy in the yellow sweater sweater wanted. Um, Would you support... (laughs) Ending the Wait, let me ask you this first. The guy in the yellow sweater, what's your name? <laughs> what's your first name? Ted. Okay, Ted. You know, I, 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 I think that, that, look, having been commissioner of finance of a state and having been mayor of a city, I always believe that education is best carried out at the local level. And we send 90% of the strings attached to the education and 10% of the money. So let me say this. I, I, I could go way, way, way towards those dollars being done at the state and local level, and I don't want to say something overly rash. I do want to say to you, though, that that uh, that's why when you talk about the stimulus money, just trying to get back to 08 levels, which is all that's really being talked about right now, makes a lot of sense, right, just to do away with this bulge that we've seen happen over the last couple of years. It's not like... You know, people use the words extreme. It's anything but extreme what's being discussed right now as it relates to this CR. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, Thank you very much, Senator. Thank you. If I can call up uh, Richard Vetter and Vito Tanzi for our next panel. Okay, to stay on schedule, we're going to go ahead and start uh, right away. Uh, This panel is going to feature two very distinguished economists, as well as myself. Uh, I've already introduced myself, Dan Mitchell of the Cato Institute. I've kicked around town for a few years. But let me spend a little bit more time uh, saying who are the next two speakers to follow me uh, will be. We have uh, Richard Vetter, who is a... at the American Enterprise Institute right now. And uh, he's written several books, more than 200 scholarly articles. Uh, But most importantly to me, he gave the best line I've ever heard in a speech. I forget, maybe it was an ALEC conference or something like that, talking about whether Texas 
uh, should adopt an income tax, and he said they'd be better off giving the uh, Alamo to Osama bin Laden. And uh, I've always wanted to try to exceed that uh, uh, myself. Uh, his books are on everything from fiscal policy uh, to uh, uh, unemployment and government in the 20th century, going broke by degree, why college costs so much, uh, too much. And he's also written on Walmart, but he wouldn't even give me a 10% off card uh, to shop there. Uh, we then are, we'll hear from Vito Tanzi, who is uh, the former chairman of the economics department here in uh, the United States at American University. Uh, he was the director of, fiscal of uh, the fiscal affairs department at the IMF, the president of the International Institute of Public Finance. Uh, the, he was also, did a stint in government, state secretary for economy and finance in, uh, in Italy, where he was born. Uh, and he wrote one of my favorite books. Lots of people will thumb through their old yearbooks to reminisce about the good old days. I thumb through Vito's book, Public Spending in the 20th Century, and you'll see why when I show you one of my PowerPoint slides. Uh, but what we'll do is I'll speak first, uh, then Rich will come up, and then Vito will come up. We're all going to try to stay around 10 to 12 minutes uh, and then take your questions. Let me go ahead and start with my presentation. And the first thing I want to say is don't listen to economists at least when we try to make predictions. Uh, and maybe if we could dim the lights a little bit, because economists do a lousy job forecasting the economy. But maybe, just maybe, we do a good job suggesting that if you change policies over time, you might have some effect on the economic growth rate. So this chart just shows what happened to the economy versus what economists forecast, uh, not a very close correlation. The second thing I want to say is that we all need to have a little humility. If you look at economic policy and you look at the impact of government, there are all sorts of things that matter. Uh, monetary policy, trade policy, labor policy, rule of law, property rights, regulatory policy. We're up here talking fiscal policy. But if you look at, for instance, the economic freedom of the world rankings, fiscal policy is only 20% of a nation's grade. Same thing for the index of economic freedom. You can look at the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Report. All these different rankings out there have all these different variables. Fiscal policy is just one. And so it's possible you could have a nation like Sweden with a very large public sector that's actually more free market than a nation like Paraguay with a small public sector. But again, as economists, what we're trying to do is figure out if we're just going to isolate the impact of fiscal policy, what, uh, what difference does that make? And I want to go ahead and talk about something called the Ron curve. It's actually called lots of things, but Richard Ron gives me a dollar every time I associate it with his name. It's sort of the Laffer curve version uh, for spending. It shows that when government doesn't exist and you have this anarchical state of nature, uh, you have very little economic output. Uh, because there's no incentive to accumulate capital and build wealth uh, when you're worried about roving bands of marauders uh, stealing everything you produce. So uh, as public goods are provided, things like rule of law, property rights, sound money, uh, some physical and human capital, those levels of government spending are associated with more economic growth. But then, of course, as you get into transfer and consumption spending, then government spending tends to be associated uh, with weaker economic performance. And there's all sorts of studies out there. You ask five economists uh, for their opinion on something, you'll get six different answers. And so you get all these estimates from anywhere from 17% to 30% about the growth maximizing level of government. I even saw one study that said 37% of GDP. Again, 
it's impossible probably to figure out for any given country what the correct level of government spending is. But what's interesting about these academic studies out there is that every single Western nation spends above those levels. I guess uh, uh, Switzerland is down around 33% of GDP. So if you think that the optimal size of government is toward the higher end of these studies, maybe Switzerland would be at that level. But because of data limitations, I actually think these studies overestimate the growth maximizing size of government. This is some data that Vito put together. It shows government spending in six nations from 1870 to 1960. And you can see back in 1870, Government spending in Sweden, the UK, US, Japan, Germany, and France averaged only about 10% of GDP. And even at the uh, eve of World War I, government spending averaged, what, only uh, maybe 12% of GDP. So if you were to believe that the growth maximizing size of government was 20% or 30% or even 37%, that would imply that during this period of rapid economic growth in the golden century between the Napoleonic Wars and World War I, that all these governments should have had, all these nations should have had much, much bigger government. But in some sense, this is just academic theorizing on my part, because what we know for sure is that the burden of government spending in America now is more than 40%, according to the OECD, and other nations in Europe tend to be even higher than us, with some over 50% of GDP. And as I talked about in the introduction to Senator Corker, if we leave government on autopilot, we're talking about the federal government going from around 24 to 25% of GDP today to 45% of GDP or perhaps even more, depending on which CBO uh, scenario uh, that you use. Now, this is sort of what we're looking at in terms of actual fiscal policy. Uh, the, uh, the blue line that rises rapidly, that's the projection according to CBO of what revenues will be over the next 10 years, even if the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts are made permanent. We have current spending levels, and this simply shows that if you freeze spending, if you let spending grow at 1% or let spending grow at 2%, how long it takes to balance the budget. Now, under the Obama budget, spending would grow 4.7% uh, per year on average, so obviously you don't get to balance. Under Paul Ryan's budget, government spending grows at 2.6% or 2.7% per year on average. So you balance, but outside of the 10-year window. Uh, the Republican Study Committee just put out a budget that actually would be under that 2% uh, growth rate. So that gives you a sense of the fiscal magnitudes of what we're talking about in terms of what has to happen to get uh, uh, fiscal policy under control. I want to briefly touch on some countries that have made some dramatic reforms. And basically, the formula is this. If government spending grows slower than the private economy, government spending shrinks as a share of GDP, and because tax revenues tend to track the growth of a private sector GDP, you'll wind up not only having a smaller burden of government relative to GDP, but in all likelihood, you're going to automatically find yourself uh, moving toward fiscal balance. And of course, if you do, the, do it the other way around, like we have during the Bush-Obama years, where government grows faster than private GDP, then you wind up with this uh, sort of extrapolating to very bad economic conditions, which is where we are if we leave, leave things on autopilot. These are all based on numbers from the Economist Intelligence Unit. This is an example of Ireland between 1985 and 1989. They basically froze spending. Uh, in other words, that will be like in that previous chart of the US, 0% growth in nominal spending. Ireland had this spending freeze from uh, 85 to 89. And what happened? 
government spending as a share of GDP, the dark line, and the budget deficit as a share of GDP, which is sort of, I don't know, pink, purple line, whatever that is, uh, they both came down dramatically. Uh, this is Slovakia between 2000 and 2003. Uh, government spending grew at about an average of 1.8% a year. What happened to uh, government spending as a share of GDP and deficits as a share of GDP? You see that they both fell uh, fairly substantially. As a matter of fact, you'll see in all four of my examples that when government spending falls as a share of GDP, budget deficits fall as a share of GDP. Uh, here's New Zealand, which is a, a very impressive story because between 1990 and 1995, they actually reduced government spending in nominal terms, which is really remarkable. And of course, between 1990 and 1991, uh, that's when they really had some dramatic reforms. And what we see is not only did government spending fall as a share of GDP, but you see that they went from a relatively large budget deficit to a relatively large uh, budget surplus. And here's Canada, our neighbors to the north. Uh, they allowed government spending to grow between 1992 and 1997, but only by an average of about 1% a year. And by holding the nominal, uh, nominal government spending to 1% growth per year on average, this had enormous implications, not only for government spending as a share of GDP, but they had a budget deficit of about 9% of GDP, not that different than what we have in the US, and within five years, they actually had a small budget surplus. So these countries show that you can start with a very large budget deficit. You can start with a public sector that is way too large. And in a rel relatively short period of time, if you actually put real controls on the nominal growth of government spending, and whether you do that with a Corker-type cap act that constrains government relative to GDP, whether you do it with some sort of Tabor limit that says government can't grow faster than, say, the rate of inflation, or maybe inflation plus population. There are any number of ways to skin the cat, but so long as you're controlling the growth of government spending or freezing government spending, you get these very good fiscal results. I want to go ahead and close by just pointing out there have been some success stories in the United States. The combination of Bill Clinton and the 1994 Congress meant that we had a four-year period in America where government spending in nominal terms only grew by an average of 2.9% a year, and that's when we went from a $164 billion deficit to a $126 billion surplus in just a four-year period. Under Reagan, we reduced domestic spending, total domestic spending, including entitlements, from 15.7% of GDP down to 13.2% of GDP. I will point out that in the good old days, as I call them, Fiscal policy wasn't a problem uh, for much of our nation's history because the federal government only averaged about 3% of GDP. But I want to show some charts here looking at total domestic spending. On the left, you have the Reagan years. The middle, you have the Clinton years. And then you have the Bush-Obama years. And you can sort of get a sense of how fiscal policy has sort of veered off in the wrong direction in the last decade, a 5.7 percentage point increase in federal government domestic spending as a share of GDP is really remarkable. And remar I don't use that in a positive way. Let's put it in terms that are a little bit easier to understand. This is inflation adjusted $2,005. During the Reagan years, Domestic spending increased adjusted for inflation, but by an average of only $9.7 billion a year. During the Clinton years, and he actually did a good job even in his first two years when the Democrats controlled Congress, government spending on domestic uh, spending increased $37.7 billion a year on average, but during the Bush-Obama years, $103.3 billion. 
we got into this mess by spending too much, and I think that obviously implies that the answer is on the spending side of the equation, uh, not on the tax side of the equation. So in conclusion, we have to identify what is the real problem. I think deficits are the symptom. A government that is too big doing too much is the actual underlying problem. We have to figure out how to bend the overall cost curve of government. And, uh, and of course, that means, if I'm allowed to be a little bit philosophical in my last sentence, we need to convince people that liberty is better than dependency. Thank you very much. And uh, I will now, if uh, Rich, you want to come up, I think I'm going to, yes, here is your presentation. The five-word executive summary of my talk is, I agree with Dan Mitchell. That's a good summary. Uh, actually, I was even going to have the bit about economists with humility. Dan has stolen this from earlier speeches that I gave, which is the perils of being the middle speaker rather than the first one. My favorite story is Paul Samuelson's 1985 textbook example that the Soviet planning system is a powerful engine for economic growth. 25 years ago, five years before the end, six years before the end of the Soviet Union. Don't listen to economists too much. Uh, so let's talk about philosophy. Uh, Confucius said around 500 years before the birth of Christ, he talked about the golden mean, which was also a central theme in Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean uh, Ethics, which was written 2,361 years ago this year. Uh, so I think we ought to talk more about Aristotle and economics. And Aristotle talked about the golden mean. And although I tremble to say this at the Cato Institute, I have to be honest, talking about economic history, that there has never been a truly prosperous society without some form of government. And at the very minimum, a set of rules or laws to govern human interaction, property rights need to be delineated, and all of this requires some sort of enforcement. Similarly, however, there's never been a nation uh, that, this, this is uh, the Ron rule explained, uh, except I don't call it Ron, because Ron pays him a buck for each time he uses it. Dick Army pays me $5 for every time I use it, so I call it the Army curve. Um, uh, which is going to come up in a minute. I don't even know. Is there a device you push? or just to press the enter button. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, there has never been a society, obviously, that's been very prosperous where government controls the society. Just look at North Korea and Cuba relative to its neighbors. We could go on. All you know that. So uh, there, zero output, zero government relative to output means poverty. 100% government relative to uh, output means poverty. So that means that somewhere in between, there is an output that's, uh, there, there's a size of government associated with a high level of output. And you might call this the golden mean role, uh, 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 rule of government. Uh, now, it is not strictly speaking that this is the optimal level of government. I say this because Bill Niskanen is sitting in the third row and he's constantly lecturing me on that point. And he is absolutely correct. There are many factors that enter to, into human welfare uh, besides uh, GDP. And it's important to recognize it. Having said that, however, the output maximizing level of government 
moving towards the output maximizing level of government likely will lead to some improvements in welfare, given the fact that most of the time people prefer more to less. So, and uh, that is uh, illustrated by my version. Now, they, we put LAFRA up here to compromise between Army and Ron. Uh, uh, at point A here is where you have output maximizing size of government. Uh, and the question is, we are, and Dan made this point, I do too, that we're at some point B, which was where the, si the current size of government is substantially larger than the optimal. By the way, the way Dan drew the graph was more correct uh, but the, the, uh, in terms of the actual scaling, but uh, the, that, that's re relatively irrelevant. Now, there have been a number of economists that have looked at this with respect to the U.S. And uh, Jim Gortney, a professor at Florida State, sometimes in col uh, collaboration with Bob Lawson, most recently of Auburn, uh, it's the late uh, Jerry Scully, uh, a professor at University of Texas at Dallas. Lowell Galloway and I have looked at this. Uh, and we've all tried to estimate the gap between A and B here. And, 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 and where we are and where we could be or should be, perhaps. Uh, for example, the studies that uh, Galloway and I did for the Joint Economic Committee, whose vice chairman, by the way, you're going to hear from next, I think, uh, in the next panel, uh, we found that point A was somewhere between 10 and 17 percent of GDP for the United States depending on the precise method of estimation. Our preferred way of estimating it, we come up with a figure of 10. Uh, but even, let's accept 17, just for the sake of argument. This is just federal government. To get to 17% of GDP, and you're look, looking at total expenditures, would involve about a trillion dollar reduction in annual expenditures from current levels. Uh, 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 and it also suggests that reducing government size uh, would also uh, provide a great deal of new resources to deal with the growing present and future fiscal burdens that we face as a nation manifested in such things uh, as our massive federal debt and the problems arising from the aging of our population, which we see in the form of unfunded Social Security and Medicare uh, liabilities. Now, the analysis of all this by both Dan and myself has been oversimplified a bit. As Bill would, and Ms. Cannon would pass, correctly pointed out in discussions with me, and, and I've, I recognize on my own, uh, Bill's a source of a lot of wisdom, but not all wisdom. Uh, a dollar of government spending on goods and services certainly has a different impact on GDP than a dollar of spending on transfer payments, say for Social Security, pensions, food stamps, or ethanol subsidies. A dollar of spending on highways probably has a different impact than a dollar of spending on defense or on school salaries, teacher salaries, or flu vaccinations. But most importantly, government regulatory spending is trivial in its dollar magnitude in the budget, but potentially far-reaching in its impact since it forces the private sector to allocate resources differently than it would otherwise. And of course, in our federal system in the U.S., it's appropriate to look at state and local government as well. Uh, Galloway and I have found that the growth maximizing size of state and local government is a good deal smaller than that existing. But even with all of these caveats, the bottom line is we have vastly too much government activity for our own material good, the point that Dan made uh, just a minute ago. 
It is possible to use statistical techniques to get insights as to where you can get the most bang for the buck in the reductions in spending, but I'll we'll leave that to another day and another session. Dan liked to talk about Sweden, so do I. Uh, so let's continue our discussion of Sweden. And let, but let's have talk about a tale of two nations. Uh, let's talk about Ireland versus Sweden. In 1970, Sweden had, by some OECD measures, the second or third largest GDP per capita in the world. Uh, and as this slide suggests, its GDP per capita was more than twice of that of Ireland, which was viewed at the time as being amongst the poorest Western European countries. Uh, uh, Western European countries. Now, fast forward to the present, and we see that the Irish uh, GDP or income per capita, however you want to measure it, is is far greater than Sweden. Now, why is this? It occurred to me possibly that the Irish people are models of sobriety and hard work, while the Swedes are lazy drunks. <laughs> However, I dismiss that possibility. Uh, rather, I think uh, that the next slide here uh, explains this rather better uh, as a more plausible explanation. We see back in 1970, the Irish and the Swedes were both spending 45% uh, or so of their GDP on government spending, uh, whereas today, uh, even with uh, some tra uh, recent increases, uh, the Irish are, have, are, have fought, share has fallen as a percent of GDP, whereas the Swedes have actually risen over the same period. So a huge gap has opened up, and so the Swedes uh, uh, have suffered. In terms of that initial graph, uh, the Swedes are farther uh, away from uh, the growth-maximizing governmental size than the Irish, and they are paying the price. And that is even true, by the way, after the economic hardships that Ireland has gone through in recent years. Ireland's well-known low 12% corporate income tax, for example, uh, which is possible because of the reduction in spending, has attracted capital throughout the world. It has raised the ratio of capital to labor in Ireland, the key to productivity growth. Sweden has not had those inducements. The cost of resources are bloated in Sweden by the cost of funding an excessive welfare state, what we would call entitlement spending. Now, sometimes in all the discussion that the senator and Dan gave, we didn't say really why reducing government size expands uh, output growth. Why be, uh, why do, is reduction growth inducing? And I think it's important to remember, most all of you know this, but it's important to point out or, again, that when government expands its command over resources, or compels income redistribution, it must finance that activity in some fashion. Higher taxes, more borrowing, or by inflation through monetary creation. All three of these ways have a crowding out impact on private activity, operating through the income or the interest rate or the price mechanism. The bottom line is that resources move from the private sectors of the public one. Private sector activity almost always occurs in competitive markets and is disciplined by profits. 
Incentives exist to reduce costs through efficiency, enhancing innovation, and expanse revenues similarly by introducing new and improved goods and services. By contrast, governments are monopolies where resource allocation is made by inefficient political processes where efficiency and innovation are relatively irrelevant concepts. By the way, today it appears more likely that there will be a government shutdown uh, by tomorrow. The NASDAQ is up. <laughs> Minor empirical point. <laughs> now, why are we operating beyond the optimal size? I think public choice uh, economics gives us some insight into this. Uh, the marginal political benefits to politicians of expanding government generally have exceeded the marginal political costs, in part because the benefits of enhanced government spending are often concentrated amongst the few, while the costs are dispersed among the many, leading to asymmetrical in informational biases uh, that create uh, spending that most of the public would oppose if they really knew about it. Uh, it it's also incentivizes the benefit of special interests to invest heavily in lobbying. Uh, and it explains K Street in Washington, D.C. By the way, the more prosperous the capital city is of any nation, generally the lower the rate of economic, relative to the rest of the country, the lower the rate of economic growth. I did a study for Cato once on this. It was true in ancient Rome, uh, going to, back to Italy. It's true today. Uh, uh, the idea of, of tribute in the ancient Roman Empire kind of exists still today. But I got to finish up here. Uh, there's also a short-sightedness effect, by the way, in uh, democracies where policies that confirm short-run benefits are adopted in spite of the fact that they have enormous long-term consequences. So what to do? Well, we've heard from Senator Corker and Dan and others. We'll hear of some sort of restraints, constitutional, statutory, would certainly help lower those political benefits of higher spending. Obviously, we need to cut spending, and we need to do it a lot. The current battle over 30 versus $60 billion in cuts is a woefully inadequate beginning. Uh, Ryan's uh, plan certainly is uh, potentially more meaningful in terms of constructive action, but we need to totally rethink the welfare state and its funding. Uh, it's not going to happen with a current president or Congress. It would be even difficult to happen, I think, if the executive branch and the Senate were to shift next year. But one thing good, surveys of young people show that they really do not believe they're going to receive many of the benefits of the welfare state. They don't believe they're going to get Social Security. Disillusionment over health care, Obamacare provisions are high. There is a base out there of optimism, and a charismatic leader committed uh, to a new governmental paradigm for America could make a world of difference. A paradigm where we try to do less in order to get more. Thank you very much. Vito? I guess if we can bring the, well, I don't even have to say it, it happens. Thank you very much. I don't have uh, PowerPoint, so I'll make uh, some uh, informal remarks. I, I want to start by, by mentioning that 25 years ago, Herbert Stein invited me to write a paper for a book that was published, was called uh, uh, Tax Policy in the 21st Century. At the time when I uh, 
when I set to write this paper, it uh, stuck, struck on me, you know, I became aware that uh, the difference in public spending between uh, Belgium and Switzerland was 30% of GDP. No, Belgium was spending 60% and Switzerland was spending only 30%. And I asked my question, well, what were the Belgian buying with 30% more of spending than, than the Swiss? So that really made me curious about the relationship between public spending and, uh, and uh, not just the growth, but uh, economic welfare, I think, is a better uh, relationship. And I, in, the, in the book that Dan mentioned, you know, I, I came to the conclusion that by the time a country spent 35% of GDP, probably you would have, would have satisfy, satisfied all the needs that the government could possibly uh, want to, to fulfill. So th that was uh, the first point I want to make. The second point is that uh, the, you know, about, again, about 25 years ago when I was the director of the Fiscal Affairs Department at the Fund, we had a visit from, by a delegation from uh, the Netherlands, and they want to discuss about the idea of freezing spending at a certain level of GDP. And we had a meeting, and I must confess that I was very embarrassed by myself and by my colleague in the fund, because none of us had much that we could tell. You know, nobody had thought of, about this idea. Well, as it turned out, the, the Dutch did so. They introduced a rule that froze essentially certain spend, public spending at a certain level of GDP, and they have had some of the best performance of all these years. A, a last point, and this I think I want to to be a little bit in disagreement with the, with the last speaker is about Sweden. You know, the graph that was on the board actually indicates two things. Indicate that the Swedes cut public spending by 15% of GDP after 1991-92. And what happened in Sweden? Well, growth went up quite dramatically, and no socioeconomic indicator worsened. As far as I know, they did very, very well. On the other hand, Ireland, that had been spending very little, increased spending by about 10% of GDP, and we know what happened, you know? So the, also the direction of change is very important, not just the, the level. I think that that's an important point to make. The, some of the comments I'll be making very shortly, uh, very briefly, have to do with, the, are actually coming from a book that is just about to come out in the next month, in fact, by Cambridge University Press called Spending, uh, called the Government, Again, Government versus uh, Markets. And uh, it's a major, it's a 400 pages a book on the role of the state in the economy. There are lots of statistics, lots of data on many countries over 200 years. So I urge you to, to go and buy it. This would be a cheap book, $30 or some, somewhere around that. And, uh, and we will have many of the answers that you want to the issue. Well, I, let me go back more to my formal uh, notes that I've taken. I clearly share the view that the current fiscal situation in the U.S. is not sustainable and that the needed correction should be made sooner rather than later. They said this view that uh, Christina Romer, for example, has written a couple articles in the New York Times saying, well, what is the worry? You know, the, the, the interest rates are not changing. Look at the, the 30 years or 10 years rate and there's been no change, so why worry? Now, I was talking recently with a major economist at Brookings who told me that, uh, well, he did not know why people worry about public debt. What is there to worry about? You know, this is an irrelevant issue. 
Well, the thing that my experience as a director, I was a director of the fiscal affairs in the fund for 20 years, so I had a lot of time to observe country, is that uh, just like a disaster when a bridge falls, they don't fall smoothly, no, over time. It, they happen from one moment to another. So everything may be looking well for a while, and all at once things deteriorate, and, uh, and then you get into the trouble as, uh, as Greece or Portugal, Ireland, and so forth. The level of, of U.S. public debt has clearly entered a dangerous zone. You know, it's, uh, it's very, very high. It's clearly the net debt is above the, the Maastricht level, and the gross debt now is very, very high. It will affect economic growth, as economic literature indicates. There are lots of papers that have come out, Rogoff, but there's also a paper by myself and some others that have indicated that by the time the public debt reaches a certain level, economic growth really gets affected because people begin to worry, investments are delayed, and so forth. Gross public debt was 32.5% of GDP in 1981. This is the gross, which includes all the debt of the, the public, also the one to the social security. So it's different from the, the data that were presented earlier by the senator. It is, a, it is expected to reach 102.6% this year. Under current policy, it will continue to rise, something will must be done and must be done soon. The federal government public spending was only 3.4% of GDP in 1930. In other words, the, the fiscal deficit today is three times the total spending in 1930. You know, it was, uh, the spending was, the federal uh, public spending was 15% of GDP in 1950, rose to 23% in 2001, uh, 2011, and uh, thus it grew seven times as a share of GDP since 1930. You know, public spending is seven times as a share of GDP as it was in 1930. The 2011 level of public spending was 5% of GDP above the trend in the past three decades and the highest level since World War II. You have to go to 1945 before you get to the same level. The share of federal uh, revenue at 14.4% of GDP was down by more than 6% of GDP since 2000. The current level of revenue is the lowest in 50 years. This came as a surprise to me when I looked at the data because there's all this talk about an extremely high level of, of taxation, which is high, and I would like to, to be very much lower. I don't have almost any deduction. I pay, I pay my taxes to the federal, U.S. federal government, and I just finished my, my income tax payment, so I know how terrible it is. But I have to point out that this is the lowest in 50 years, you know, that uh, you have to go back to nine, 19, uh, 1960, I think, before you get to the present level of tax to GDP. Well, this, this implies to me, and this I, I think I'm in slightly disagreement with Dan, that the needed fiscal adjustment, at least over the short and medium run, over the long run is a different story. I agree completely with the statement which were made. But over the, the short run will inevitably require the contribution of both sides of the budget. I think it's an illusion to believe that we can adjust the fiscal deficit simply by cutting only spending, you know, we have to do something on the tax side over the short run. Over the medium and long run is a different story. The data that I reported uh, are those of the federal budget, but they are the states and the municipalities. Total government expenditure was 34% of GDP total, this including federal 
state and local, was 34% of GDP in 2000. It rose to over 43% of GDP in 2010. At this level, US total public spending was in the European territory. So we are a European countries now from this point of view. There's no, no more uh, much a uh, different. The major culprit was, uh, as I think was uh, pointed out by the last speaker, was transfers. You know. The transfers rose by more than 5% of GDP since 2000. Government real expenditure, and this is again something that people don't really notice, that the, the real government expenditure has not changed very much for many years in the US, you know, has gone marginally. All the increase has been in transfers, you know. And health spending, of course, led the way and can be expected to keep increasing over the future. There are projections that it will go to 25% of GDP. Uh, let me now go to some more general comments, which are a little bit less, uh, less US focused. I suppose I have a two, three more minutes. No, no. The, in 1976, Adam Smith set some clear and useful guidelines on what a good government should do. It was, uh, at that time, it was an expansion of the role of government, actually. Smith is always pointed out as being a very conservative economist, but re in relation to his time, really what he was proposing was a significant expansion of what the, the government should do, and, and a, a redirection from a b bad uh, government that uh, concentrated on bad regulation to government that concentrated on the creation of infrastructure, etc. Smith advocated the government concentration on public goods and the creation of needed institution and infrastructure. This was the main thing. His guideline included also some assistance for the very poor who could not help themselves. You know, they, we are talking about the really poor people. Well, if the government followed Smith's rule today, how much would they spend? Well, the best guess is they would spend somewhere around 10% of GDP. So we compare this to 43 or 44% of GDP, and you get the, the point, you get the problem. You know? The addition of redistribution and stabilization as government functions were really largely responsible for this increase in public spending. Once you begin to talk about the redistribution, there is no rule how much redistribution is enough. You know, that's, uh, everybody wants something for it itself. And the stabilization, too, is a problem because stabilization is asymmetric. When you have in a recession, you, s you increase spending and you cut taxes. When you get uh, out of the recession, you don't do the reverse, or you do the reverse only in part. So this uh, automatically brings over time some increase in spending. The progressive crowding out of private social, also, by the way, as the government increases its role, social arrangements, which were very common when, uh, when uh, was the French who came to the U.S. in the 1830? Uh, uh, the, the Tocqueville. When the Tocqueville came to the U.S., he was very much impressed by all the arrangement that they were. If you look at the biography of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin, he talks a lot about all this arrangement of mutual assistance and so forth. Many of these things have disappeared today, you know? And, uh, and because the government has, has stepped in and the government had crowded out this kind of arrangement, uh, well, basic guidelines and assumptions that led to growing public sector intervention were three or four. One was the widespread market failure, and here I think economists share the blame, because especially I, when I was at Harvard in the early 60s, every, every week there was a new paper pointing out to some government failure, you know? 
and the, so the, the government was invited to, to step in and increase, increase ro its role. Uh, one was that uh, the, the market fails, but not the government. So, so there was no understanding that the government could fail as well as the market. The third was uh, uh, citizens' myopia, the view that uh, if the government does not step in, the, the, the citizens are, are, uh, are uh, dumb enough that they will not save for retirement, that they will not send their children to school, and they will. And there's a lot, lot of literature in the past that shows that this is not really so. There were lots of arrangements that existed at a much lower level of income in the past. Well, a fundamental law of state intervention start, also, this actually is almost my last point that uh, the government, when it intervenes, it always intervenes with a new law, which is very focused. You, you identify a very clear group of citizens that need assistance. Maybe you are handicaps. Handicaps are truly handicapped. People who don't have legs or com are completely blind. Then as time passes, the government, the law begins to be expanded. Maybe, well, somebody with one eye, who is blind or one eye, begins to be qualified. Somebody who maybe can still walk, but the limbs begin to be qualified. So as time passes, you have a creek that becomes a river, and, and this has happened to many, many programs. So this is really one of the fundamental law of public spending. It's emphasized a little bit more in my book. You know. Now, the one, two or three major um, other points that I want to make. One, that there are several studies that, to which some I've contributed some with some of my colleagues at the European Central Bank that look at the level of public spending and try to connect that level with socioeconomic indicators. You get a list of socioeconomic indicators which may be important. Literacy, you know, income distribution, growth, uh, low inflation, etc. And then you say, well, are these socioeconomic indicators connected with the level of spending? And if you do this exercise, and we have done it with a, in two, three papers, was a paper in the public choice of 2005, and one in uh, applied uh, economics of 2010, you find that at the best there is no connection between the level of public spending and the quality of socioeconomic indicators. Or, or better, if you want to push the data a little bit, you find that the lower the level of spending, the better are these socioeconomic indicators. Which goes back to this curve that was shown a couple of times, that you really don't need to go much beyond maybe 30% of GDP or even less to get all of the, the benefits that you want to achieve. Two more uh, very, very quick points. One is a comment that one thinks that is elaborated at great length, at some length anyway, in my book. One problem that worries me, has worried me more and more, is complexity of fiscal policy. Complexity comes in many ways, in many areas. Comes in the area of taxation, which have become, you know, I don't know whether you realize there are 70,000 pages of uh, rules and regulation on the U.S. income tax, no? And uh, how many pe people know this? You, you look at the bills that go to, to Congress, and they are 2,500 pages. And you ask the question, did Obama ever read them? Or the, the senator or the congressman that had to vote ever read them? You know? So this is uh, really a problem that is becoming major. And of course, the, the grower, the largest role of government, the more of the, this problem. Now, the last point I want to make, and this is clearly highly controversial, and this to argue that the U.S. should have a value at the tax. And why is this? You know, 
Well, in 1985, I was, I was in a group that was advising the, the Rosenkowski and, and the Ways and Means Committee on the tax reform for 1986. And one time we were taken to, to Cape Canaveral and I was asked to make a statement about the value of the tax. And I said, well, it was a good tax. You know, you could raise, a, raise a revenue in a simple way. Uh, but uh, I, I pointed out that you would need about 30 or 40,000 people more in the Internal Revenue Service to introduce this tax because there was no knowledge of it. Well, this killed the tax. Rostenkowski, a couple of times when I saw him afterward, he said, you are the one who killed the value of the tax. But now, why am I, am I coming with it? Being a conservative, why would I recommend the value? Well, this, again, in this book that I've written, I've realized for the first time that the most redistributive tax system in the OECD countries, the U.S. tax system. I don't know whether you realize this. You know, it's not the Swedish. You know, the Swedes they they raise they put taxes on everybody, but the income tax of the U.S. has created a situation where lots of people don't pay any tax or pay very little, and others like me who don't have deductions pay a lot of taxes. So those who don't pay taxes make much, much greater pressure for more social spending. So if you remove the large part of the income tax and you place, replace it with the value of the tax, maybe you would have less pressure on, uh, on the government for spending. I'm sure this is highly controversial. And of course, as many people point out, the value of the tax is a is a machine for raising revenue, so there's the other danger. But thank you very much. Okay, we have time for maybe a couple of questions before we take a break. We have a gentleman, uh, uh, we'll call you white shirt to match Mr. Yellow sweater, or actually you're a tan shirt or whatever that is. I uh, thank you very much for your comments. Shaq Hill, concerned citizen from Centerville, Virginia. Um, I completely disagree with the value-added tax. If you continue to add taxes to anything, you're going to stifle it. And if you're going to do a value-added tax to the income system, for example, it's going to completely stifle those who are looking to generate income. I'd like to have your comment on the fair tax. I understand that. But I'd like to have your comment on the fair tax or a flat tax. Thank you very much. I think that was T.O. Well, you know, the, I've had to intervene many times uh, on the flat tax. You know, in, uh, I was invited in Montenegro, I think I was invited in, uh, in the two, three other countries uh, uh, for the, the one problem with the, with the flat rate tax is that the assumption is that the problem is with the, completely with the rate and not with the base. You know, but uh, I mean, I've been working on this area for 40 years. I've written two books on the income tax, and all, most of the problem are the defining the definition of the base. All the complication of the of the income tax comes not from the rate, but from the base. Once you de determine your taxable income, there's a there's a, a chart that you can go there and see how much you have to pay. So that, uh, in a way, you know, the value, if you want a flat rate tax on income, why not a value of the tax? It's a flat rate tax on consumption. Isn't that much better? Uh, I'll just add that the Hall-Rabushka model flat tax, the pure flat tax, the national sales tax or fair tax, the value-added tax, they're all single-rate consumption-based taxes, and all three of them clearly would be much better than this bizarre system we have today. 
Vito and I, obviously, we disagree a bit about, you know, should you do a VAT without getting rid of all the income tax? That's certainly what I would insist on, uh, but I'm very untrusting. Uh, uh, but uh, other questions? Uh, I guess uh, the gentleman uh, right there. Yes, I just need a clarification, and, and that is your, your logic. Uh, you say as uh, government spending percent of GDP drops, the GDP goes up. But, of course, it could be in reverse. The GDP goes up for many reasons, and you haven't really shown any of those facts. I mean, there is private uh, debt, uh, there's investment, there's the current account, and there's also the velocity of money. So without including all of the others in there, I don't know how you can come to that conclusion. Matter of fact, when you talk about Ireland, uh, yes, the, the debt to GDP went up, but the debt of the Irish banks and personal debt went up tremendously, and Ireland is going into bankruptcy. So if you use your logic, the, if you lower the uh, debt to government debt to DB, uh, GDP, you uh, accumulate bankruptcy. Well, uh, I'll tell you something. First, uh, in my presentation, I pointed out that fiscal policy is just 20 percent at most of a country's performance, and you have to have some humility about claiming policy A has some giant effect. Uh, but I think the point Rich made, and he'll, I'm sure, comment about the specifics of Ireland, is that when you're looking at what is the mechanism, why does bigger government undermine growth, it's because capital and labor are being allocated in a less efficient manner would probably be the most simple uh, way of phrasing it. But did you want to comment on well, Ireland? Well, uh, I'll just call it, comment generally on the question. There, it is true when you talk about the move of two variables, whatever they are. Uh, beer consumption and economic growth. It's true that nations that consume more beer may have higher GDP, maybe higher growth, and there may be absolutely no causality, and one went argue the direction of causality. And in our presentations in 10 minutes, 12 minutes time, we're not able to get into issue, technical issues relating to causality. I think, though, that there's been a lot of serious research in economics, uh, including using very sophisticated models and so forth, that have used causality testing and so forth, that have founded that, in general, the direction of causation is in uh, along the lines that all three of us indicated, namely that on average, and there are exceptions, as Dan points out, there are other factors that impact growth besides fiscal policy, but on average, lowering of, of tax burdens, lowering of government expenditure burdens, lowering of debt burdens, lowering of any fiscal measure of importance you want to name, is usually associated with an, an increase in uh, of uh, economic activity, and so uh, you know it's it's an empirical question, and the and we obviously didn't get in detail into that, but I think the evidence is pretty strong out there from many, including people at the IMF, people at the World Bank, people in Europe, Americans. I I, I once listed 150 studies that showed a, a a negative relationship between taxes and economic growth just within the United States, and I don't think I that list was complete. Yeah, let's take one more question before a break, and I guess uh, Mr. Blue uh, Suit there. All of the speakers introduced the distinction between government purchases of goods and services and transfer payments. I wonder if they'd elaborate a little more on what the key analytical distinctions are between those two categories of spending and economic growth, 
and maybe shed a little light on what research shows about the quantitative difference. And as a subsidiary point, in thinking about this, are spending on Medicare and Medicaid considered transfer payments or government purchases? Thank you. Vito, you want to start? Yeah, this, uh, well, you know, the real, what is called the real expenditure, which is when the government actually purchases goods and services, is normally associated with public goods, with the creation of institution, creation of infrastructure, public investment, and some uh, defense, obviously. These are the real, the fundamental role of the state. A state, a government cannot, a country cannot exist, or a government cannot exist without performing this role. Redistribution and uh, stabilization came much later. Redistribution came with a, with a, a really, with a, a German economist, Wagner, who around 1880 wrote uh, some famous papers which were very much cited. And he had he introduced the idea that you could have a redistribution within society. But this was not fundamental. You don't need that. You know, society went on for thousands of years without that. Stabilization, as we know, came with Keynes, and we have the thousands of years without any stabilization. So really, the fundamental role of the state is associated with allocation. And allocation, apart from allocation that comes through bad regulation, is really performed, or, or, or bad allocation that comes with, with high taxes, it really is performed through expenditure. No. That would be. So the, the, the health, well, you know, health, uh, again, uh, public health did not exist until the 50s. No country in the world ever had public health until the British introduced public health in 47, 48. So, so you, it's not something that you really need. With that, uh, we do have to maintain our schedule. We're going to be back here in five minutes. Just stretch your legs, maybe use the facilities, get a drink of water. We're going to hear from Kevin Brady, the vice chairman of the Joint Economic Committee. And thank you, our speakers. <laughs>